in the world am I supposed to do now? <laughs> Choir, thank you for leading us to worship today. Um, and that was Lindsay singing the solo there. Lindsay's a student at North Greenville. And uh, Lindsay, we're so glad that you're here with us. She's here with us off and on, um, part of uh, Joyful Sound and things going on there at North Greenville. But we're so thankful to have her, thankful for the choir, thankful for um, the way Ethan and the rest of the musicians lead us to worship our God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, open with me to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 is where we will be. We're in the midst of a series called Real People, Real Jesus. Real Jesus, Real People, whichever way you want to say it. Uh, part of the vision statement here is that we would be real. We started this, this series uh, right after Easter last year, walking through Mark verse by verse. And uh, we, um, we believe that God has us strategically right here in order to be real, uh, in order to be his real people right here in this, this context to reach this community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's no better way for us to do that than to, uh, to study him and his word. So let's do that this morning. Uh, pray with me and then we'll look at this passage. God, we know this morning that you are holy. God, there are times when we get busy with life. Um, and God, we neglect that fact. We neglect that you are the sovereign Lord over all. That you are the creator. That you are the sustainer. That you are the one that is leading all of human history toward a point, the day of the Lord, where all injustice will be finally, once and for all, dealt with. It will be dealt with by a true and righteous God. And God, without Christ, that would be terrifying. With, without Him, we would dread that day. But God, we come together today, this morning, in this place, as a group of people who have experienced the forgiveness that comes through the washing of the blood of Christ. And all of our sin has been dealt with, been paid for on the cross. He has taken all of our punishment. And God, there are people in this room who can wholeheartedly claim that and say that, affirm and know that. But God, there are also people in this room today that cannot say that. They are simply heading for that day that you are leading human history toward. They've never come to know you. They've never come to see you in all of your glory. They've never come to the place where they see their sin for what it is. They've never left their sin, turned their back on it, and trusted you, Lord Jesus, as their only hope of forgiveness. And God, they are heading toward that ultimate day of judgment. And God, we pray this morning... And for those of us who can affirm that we are forgiven in Christ, that God, we would today celebrate that. And God, for those who are here that cannot affirm that they are forgiven in Christ, that today would be the day of salvation. That they would come to know you. That their ability to understand would be turned on. That you would bring them to life. That they would be converted gloriously today. That you would justify them and adopt them into the family of God. 
God, I pray that as I come to this text, God, I pray that you would speak through me. Or that you would speak through me in a way that is, that is beyond natural. God, these people do not need to hear a word from me. I don't need to hear a word from me. We need to hear from you. And God, that's why we will look at your word together. God, would you bring it to life for us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And the cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. This morning, I want to bring you to this text. And I had planned to go all the way through 13, but there's just no way that we can deal with the text adequately and go all the way through 13. There is so much packed into this, this text. I start out with the very first words in verse 2 when it says, After six days. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John up a very high mountain. After six days. The very fact that it says six days causes us immediately to ask the question, Well, what happened six days ago? What's the thing that they've been stewing on and simmering in for six days? Why, what led Peter here to relate to Mark that it was six days between when they went up on the mountain and what happened before. What is it that he's referring to? Well, the answer is that six days ago, Jesus dropped the bomb on them that he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. This was a bomb to them. This was right after Peter had made his great confession that when Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the Christ of God. Right after that, Jesus says to Peter and the rest of the disciples, I'm going to have to suffer and be rejected and be killed. This is a bomb to them. They had not seen this coming. This did not fit their idea of the Messiah, the Christ of God. They saw him as being Someone who would politically and militarily set them free from the rule of Rome over them. They wanted to be the great nation again. And they thought Jesus is the Messiah. And when he told them, well, I'm going to have to die. In their minds, this dashed their hopes of him being that type of Messiah. So that led to Jesus being rebuked by Peter. You remember the story last week that Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, Jesus, you've got this all wrong. I mean, let me explain to you what the Word of God says, Jesus. Let me explain to the Word, the Word. You get the... Peter rebukes Jesus here. And Jesus calls Peter Satan. 
Now just put yourself in Peter's sandals for just a second. And think about what he must have simmered with for six days. He had just been told, blessed are you. Blessed are you. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. What a great confession, Peter. I am the Christ. And he was full of himself, which probably led him to rebuke Jesus. And then Jesus calls him Satan. For six days he has stewed on this and thought about this. Have you ever really messed up? I mean, really, really just messed up. And everybody else comes along and they say, oh, don't worry about it. It wasn't that bad. It wasn't that big a deal. And you say, well, I I appreciate it and that sort of thing. But you, in your mind, you are kicking yourself. You are rolling it over and over and over again in your mind how you messed up. And how for six days Peter must have thought about this over and over and over. He called me Satan. I repeat. Rebuked him. And still in his mind, while he was kicking himself for rebuking Jesus, still in his mind he's thinking, but how could it be? How could Jesus die? Six days ago, Jesus had said, if you still want to follow me, then you must deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Take up the cross? What that must have meant... There was no misunderstanding. They were not thinking that Jesus meant go out to the local jewelry store and buy a gold medallion to wear around your neck. Or put another bumper sticker on your car. Or wear the latest t-shirt. They knew exactly what Jesus meant. A cross was the greatest emblem of torture in their day. And if Jesus was going to a cross, He was inviting them to take up theirs also. For six days they thought about this. He had also said, if you lose your life for my sake, don't worry, you'll really save it. Don't worry? They must have thought. Don't worry, Jesus? If I lose my life to follow you, I'm not supposed to worry about that? For six days. Believe me. There were all sorts of thoughts running through their heads. Part of them saw him only as a man, but part of them had also saw him cause the blind to see and the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, the dead to be raised. So there could certainly be truth in what he is saying. Will we have to die? Six days ago, he had said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? I mean, the whole world was exactly what they thought they were going to gain. They thought Jesus was the great political and military Messiah. They would gain the whole world. They would be part of the great power in the world. That's why they said things like, when you enter your kingdom, permit me to sit on your right hand and on your left hand. They wanted to be part of this great power. And Jesus says, if you gain the whole world, what does it profit? Wind up losing your own soul. For six days they thought about this. 
For whoever is ashamed of me, six days ago he had said, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. They must have thought, how could we not be ashamed? How could we not be ashamed? He's supposed to be the great one that will deliver us from Roman tyranny and he's going to die. How could we not be ashamed for following him, for giving our lives to follow him? They will ridicule us. Six days ago, he had ended this section and said in verse 1 of chapter 9, Truly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This must have, to some of them, gave them great hope, thinking that it's coming quickly. The kingdom is coming quickly. But still, they must have asked questions like, what in the world is that all about? Some of us will not taste death. Am I one of the some? Or am I on the outside of that group? Does this mean that it will be soon? And they were still thinking that he would be the great political and military Messiah. And six days after all of this, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. And he led them up a high mountain by themselves. We see here Jesus intentionally taking these three on this journey for at least a couple of reasons. First, according to the Old Testament law, in order to validate an event, you had to have at least two or three witnesses. And so we see here Jesus fulfilling this even to the letter of the law that he took three witnesses with him, Peter and James and John, part of the inner circle of Jesus. The only one left out was Andrew. Andrew's not taken here, but Peter and James and John are taken to validate what they're about to experience. Secondly, I think Jesus intentionally takes them on this journey because there were some things that they would need to know if they were going to truly take up their crosses and follow after Him. I mean, it's just not natural just to pick up your cross and follow after someone that's carrying theirs also. Most of the time you see someone that's being persecuted to that level and you want to distance yourself from him. Jesus knows if they're really going to do this, if they're really after he dies, going to also take up their crosses and follow after him, that there are some very important things that they need to know. And that's why he takes them up on the mountain. The next thing that happens while they're up there is they're up there to pray, Luke tells us. And then it says that Jesus was transfigured before them. Jesus was transfigured before them. The reason this happens is because they needed to know that Jesus was more than just a man. What happens in this transfiguration? What is this being transfigured? It's the same word from where we get our word metamorphosis. This change that happens right in front of their eyes. Well... Mark here gives us some description. He says, His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. It sounds as if he had a stain one time that he just couldn't get out, you know. 
He took it to the cleaners, and they just couldn't get this stain out, and he still got issues with that. And he says, Jesus was whiter than any bleacher could ever bleach those clothes. He was brilliant and dazzling. He glowed. One of the other gospel writers says that his face shone like the sun. You start to think about that. What is that all about? I mean, let's just be honest, okay? You read across something like that, you say, what in the world is all that about? Right? Am I the only one? Because you know what? That's never happened to me. I have never, I've, I've never, you know, met with, with a teacher or a mentor, Bible study leader. You know, I've never been meeting with them, having this intense conversation and prayer time with them, and all of a sudden they start glowing. I mean, that just doesn't happen, you know? What is this all about? Jesus had to show them that he was more than a man. Jesus had lived among them. They had seen him get tired. They had seen him get hungry. They had even seen him cry. These are all actions that are characteristic of a person. They'd gone with him to his hometown and seen them reject him as nothing more than the carpenter. The son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. This is, he's, he's nothing more than that. This is his own hometown. This is, these are the people that he grew up with. They say he's nothing more than the carpenter. He's Mary's son. He's siblings. They, they live right here with us to this day. These disciples had even witnessed Jesus' own family come out after him, trying to take him by force because they thought he had lost his mind. And he was becoming an embarrassment to the family. The disciples watch all of this. And the temptation would have been to think, he's really only a man. He goes through everything that we go through. He, he has all those emotions. He has all of those things happen to him that happen to us. He's no different than we are. But Jesus knows if they are going to take up their cross and follow him where he is going they need to understand that he is more than a man. That's when he took them to the mountain and pulled back the veil that covered his glory. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the, power of, by the word of his power. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And this was the reality that Jesus, he had been Forever a member of the Trinity. He was God of very God. But there was a point where he humbled himself and took on flesh and was born as a baby. And all they had ever known was this person that had grown up like them and that walked like them, ate like them, had emotions like them. But the reality is that he had humbled himself to the point of 
taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This very event that we look at this morning led John to write, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus knew that if they were going to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow Him with the mission that He came to achieve, then that He would work through them, that they needed to understand that He was more than just a man. And likewise, if we are going to deny ourselves, if we are going to take up our cross and follow Him also, it will be because He pulls back the veil of His glory and causes us to understand who He really is. I mean, isn't that what happened to you when you were saved? That the thing that used to make no sense to you, that you were running away from, the God that you knew existed but you wanted nothing to do with, pulled the, pulled the veil back and showed you His glory. It's what happened to Paul when he was Saul. These scales fell from his eyes and he saw the glorious Jesus Christ after he was resurrected. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3-6 through six illustrates this. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Praise God that He did not leave us in darkness. That He not only sent His, sons, his Son to die for the sins of the world, but... He also didn't leave you in your darkened, sinful, wrath-deserving state. But He went beyond that and He opened your eyes and pulled the veil back and showed you His glory. You may not have seen Him in person, shining with clothes that are whiter than anyone on earth could bleach them, but you saw Him. Amen? Praise God for that. They also not only needed to know that he was more than a man, but they needed to know that he was what the whole Bible was talking about. The whole Bible had been leading up to him that, that he was the subject of the entire Bible. And that's why it says, it's a little weird, when you read it you may not know exactly what it's meaning, but in verse 4, there appeared to them... Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Another gospel writer says they were talking with Jesus about his departure, the very subject that they had been simmering over for six days, his death. What in the world are Elijah and Moses doing here on the mountain with Jesus? Is Jesus not enough? I mean, seems a little out of the blue. It wouldn't have to someone who was raised in the Jewish world. You see, Elijah is the 
prototypical. He is, the, he is the prophet that sums up all of the other prophets. When you want to refer to all of the other prophets, you could say Elijah. And all of their work is sort of included in all of his. He is sort of the leader of all the prophets. And so by his showing up, he was representing there with Christ on the mountain, talking about Christ's departure, all of the prophets throughout biblical history. And then there's Moses. Well, Moses obviously represents the law. All of the law, all of the sacrificial system, all of the great rich history, the Pentateuch, all of it was represented in Moses. This would not be lost on them. Together, these two represent the law and the prophets, which is another way of saying the whole Bible at that time. They didn't have the New Testament at that time. This was the whole Bible standing in front of them, flanking Jesus, talking about His departure. Was this to convey that Jesus was just the next chapter in the story of God? Was He just the next chapter? Is this possibly what Peter was thinking when he said, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us... Build three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. I love the sentence right after that where it says, For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Let me just offer a piece of advice that my mother offered to me when I was growing up. When you don't know what to say, don't say anything. This is typical Peter. You're on the mountain. Jesus is showing you His glory. Moses is there. Elijah is there. And Peter opens his mouth. Shut up, Peter. Just quit talking. You're terrified. Someone hold his mouth. And maybe that's what Peter was was thinking when he said... It's good for us to be here. Let's just build three tents. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. As if he thought that Jesus was simply the next chapter in the story. That what had begun with Moses had led to Elijah and now it was going to Jesus and there would be someone else after that. And this is absolutely not the point of this. Jesus is not just the next chapter. He's the whole story. All of the Bible, all of the law and the prophets point to Jesus. Every bit of it. He is on every page. W.A. Criswell preached a sermon, The Scarlet Thread. I took some time yesterday and I just went through Genesis through Malachi. And I just began to, I didn't read the whole thing yesterday, but I just sort of walked through and, and I tried to see what each book was saying about Jesus. If this is true, that all of the law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament is talking about Jesus, it's all testifying to Jesus, then what does each book say? In Genesis, He is the offspring of the woman that crushes the head of the serpent. In Exodus, He is the one who redeems His people from slavery to sin. In Leviticus, He is our holiness and our required sacrifice. In Numbers, He is our leader through, the, through this world to the next. In Deuteronomy, He is our righteousness. In Joshua, He is our conqueror over Satan and unrepentant humanity. 
In Judges, He is our Savior. In Ruth, He is our kinsman redeemer. In 1 Samuel, He is our persecuted king. In 2 Samuel, He is our unfailing king. In 1 Kings, He is our everlasting king. In 2 Kings, He is our perfect king and our final prophet. In 1 Chronicles, He is our faithful king. In 2 Chronicles, He is our wise and righteous king. In Ezra and Nehemiah, He is our restorer. In Esther, He is our deliverer. In Job, He is the one who suffered with and for us. In Psalms, He is the voice of our prayers to God. In Proverbs, He is the wisdom of God. In Ecclesiastes, He is our purpose and our meaning. In Song of Solomon, He is the perfect lover of the bride. In Isaiah, He is the suffering servant of God. In Jeremiah, He is the rejected prophet. In Lamentations, He is the one who weeps over Jerusalem's fall. In Ezekiel, He is the one who suffers in our place. In Daniel, He is our companion in conflict. In Hosea, He is the faithful husband to an unfaithful wife. In Joel, He is the judgment that has come and is coming. In Amos, He is our judgment and our restoration. In Obadiah, our vindication. In Jonah, our resurrection. In Micah, He is the one who took our wrath. Nahum, He is our liberator. In Habakkuk, He is the one who works even through the wicked. In Zephaniah, He is our hope of rescue from final judgment. In Haggai and Zechariah, He is the builder of the church. And in Malachi, He is the one who purifies our souls. He is on every page. And what... Peter and James and John needed to understand that not only was he more than a man, he was the subject of the entire story. He was not simply one more chapter. Not only did they need to know that he was more than a man and that he was the subject of the whole story, but also they needed to know if they were going to take their cross and follow Christ even to death, they needed to know that Jesus was the very Son of God. In verses 5 through 7, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. In verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. I mean, you think about that experience for just a little bit. Think about, I mean, everything else that's going on. Jesus has taken you alone by himself. You're on the mountain. All of a sudden, he's glowing at wider than anyone could ever bleach these clothes. Elijah and Moses show up. And now, this cloud comes and envelops you. I mean, you're thinking, I, I'm thinking, you know, we, Jesus, we should probably build those tense right now because it's fixing to come we need to get in something and then a voice comes from the cloud this is my beloved son listen to him just just note to yourself if a cloud ever comes and envelops you and a voice comes from the cloud run that has never happened to me but in essence what it is is it's it's a throwback to the days of the Exodus. It's a throwback to the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire that led the Israelites through the wilderness. It's the very presence of God. It's the cloud 
It's the cloud that was the presence of God meeting with Moses. And here, the very cloud that hid in the cleft of the rock is the very cloud that envelops them. That they are in the midst of this cloud. That they are in the midst of this cloud being the presence of God and God speaks to them from this very cloud. There could be no mistaking this, that Jesus was not just a man. He was not just another chapter in the story. He was the story and He was the Son of God. This is what would carry them through. This is what would lead them to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow after Him. They would falter with this for just a little bit at the cross when they saw their Lord and Savior arrested in the garden and beaten and nailed to the cross and they would all flee. But at the resurrection, the resurrection, this all came back to them. When He was resurrected, it all made sense that He is more than a man. He is what all of the Bible has been talking about. He is the very Son of God. This is what would lead them to literally take up their cross. Do you understand that all of the apostles, except for one, died in following Christ? Many of them were tortured. Killed for their faith. The only one who was not tortured and was killed for his faith was John. He died on Patmos in exile because he was following the Lord. It wasn't as if he was this one among the bunch that was a coward. He simply was assigned to this island by himself alone. If he wasn't assigned there, we wouldn't have the book of Revelation. These are men who took up their cross denied themselves and followed Christ no matter what it cost them. Where does that come from? It comes from knowing that He is more than a man. It comes from knowing that no matter where you open your Bibles, that Christ is the one that is the subject of the story. That He was the one to come, and now He is the one that has come, and He is still the one who is coming back again. If we could get our minds around that, that He is the very Son of God, then we might also take up our crosses and follow Him. You may never be asked to suffer persecution like brothers and sisters around the world are. I shared last Sunday night, I've never, I've never had um, car batteries hooked up to my earlobes, had my ears burned off, I've never had my fingernails pulled out. I've never been beaten. The worst thing that has ever happened to me is someone has said something about me or wrote something about me. But in the end, it's really nothing. I may never be called to give my life in service to the Lord. You may never be called to give your life in service to the Lord. But what if you are? What if I am? Do you know who He really is? Because if you know who He really is, His grace will be sufficient for even that assignment. Let's pray together.